0: Today's scripture is Isaiah 9, chapters, or, um, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's God's truth, and that's because it's His word. Patrick's going to be lighting three candles um, for hope, uh, to represent hope, peace, and joy. And as he does that, um, let's pray and uh, praise God, um, continue to praise him. God, we uh, just thank you that we can come and praise you for um, who you are, the, the one who um, sent your son. You loved us. You love this world so much that you sent your son to bring hope, to bring peace, to bring joy to bring your kingdom to bear on this earth. And God, we uh, thank you for um, being, Jesus, being willing to humble yourself, to become a servant, to take on flesh, to be the light of the world, the light shining in the darkness. And um, Lord, we just celebrate you. We worship you in this special time where we remember your coming. And uh, we remember your coming 2,000 years ago. And we remember uh, that you will come and um, we look forward to that day. So help us to just um, sit and um, submit to your word now, whatever you have for us. And me first on that list, Lord, just uh, continue to work in my heart, my mind um, through your word. And I pray that for all of us, Lord, that you would just um, bring what you want to bring to us, Lord, because we need you. Would you just shed light in the midst of whatever darkness we got going on, Lord, if there is any, or whatever brokenness, if there is any. Lord, but we know they're his, so we thank you for being willing um, to step into it. So God, uh, have your way. Help me come under your word just now, and we pray this in your matchless name, Jesus. And everyone said? Amen. So we are um, continuing our series on Advent, Unto Us, um, just as Patrick read for us. Um, and We've been reading that passage for the last three weeks, and we're going to be doing it again next week. Um, and uh, Dan opened up the Word uh, last two weeks and, um, and uh, gave us some context, um, showed us what it, it, what it means that Jesus is uh, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, and today we're going to be looking at everlasting Father. But before we do that, um, I want to ask a couple questions. So, um, can you guys remember the worst gift that you've ever given anybody on Christmas? The worst gift you've given to somebody. Um, I remember a couple that I I had. They were doozies. Um, One was a banana hanger. Um, so I was married a very short time, maybe a couple years. We were living in love at the time, and I'm a procrastinator by nature um, to a fault. And it was like December 23rd, and I had, hadn't yet shopped for my wife, and so um, for Lori. And so I'm like, okay, but what am I going to do? I'm like thinking, okay, I'll go to Target tonight, and I'll find something for her. And, um, and then my brother calls, and he says, hey, there's this awesome movie on that's playing at the theater. We should go to that. And so I'm thinking, movie, shop for my wife. I picked the movie, of course, so I, I went to this movie and um, and it was like. We got out, and I was like, man, I still have to, I've, there's like a half hour left till Target closes. And so I ran to Target, and I'm like grabbing stuff off the shelf, and I see this, uh, she, Lori's a very practical person, she likes practical things, so I got her a banana hanger. Uh, it just so happens that um, bananas happen to be her least favorite food on the planet. <laughs> and uh, I knew that at the time, but it just, for some reason, my, my procrastinating brain and the time crunch didn't register that this would be a bad gift, so I got it for her, brought it home, she unwrapped it, and... She's like, that's, that's wonderful. That's great. Um, so we still have it. I got her other stuff, too. Um, but we still have it, and it's on the, it's on the fridge, and it kind of reminds... It looks like a little gallows, and it reminds me of, it reminds me of my stupidity. Um, uh, another gift I got... I was in youth ministry back in Florida a while ago, and we were doing, like, this junior high um, gift exchange, a white elephant gift exchange. And again, I was procrastinating. I can't remember why. And um, it was, like, a half hour before the thing started, and I went to Pier 1 Imports to a junior high for for a junior high gift because nothing says uh Christmas to a junior high kid than pure wine imports more than, so I got this, uh, I was scrambling, I found this can, a decorative can, and uh, I thought, okay, I'll I'll go to a store and get candy to fill it, but for some reason, I didn't make it to the store, and so I just wrapped this empty can, and I gave it to, I put it in the junior high (laughs) mix, it was really stupid, I don't know what I was thinking, anyway, this poor girl, she opens up this thing, and she opens it up, expecting, like, you know, treats, and there was nothing, and, um, (laughs) at that moment, I, feel, I, I felt really, really stupid. And so I redeemed myself, and when I, my number came up, I took this empty can from her so she could get a real gift. And yeah, that was my, those are my two worst gifts ever um, that I've given. How about this? Uh, what's the worst gift you've ever received? Um, how about a diet book from your spouse? <laughs> or a gym membership, maybe? Um, or a nose and ear trimmer. Um, maybe you've gotten that. Um, the thing, the thing about accepting a gift, whatever that gift is, and you're receiving it and not returning it, is that you're admitting that you need that gift, or that, that it's okay to take it. I could be offended that my kid buys me a, a ear and nose trimmer, but if they do and I and I don't take it back and I actually take it, I'm I'm saying, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm starting to look like a werewolf. I'll take it. Um, so, so, so that's what it is about a gift. If you if you take it, if you accept it, you're saying you need it, right? You're saying at some level it's yours. And by the way, we still have that banana hanger, so she must have thought it was practical at some level. Um, one of the things that's great about Christmas time is that we. Um, it's, it's kind of this magic time. It, it recaptures our imaginations. It, it recalls our memories back when we were ch- children, maybe getting that special gift, or maybe that time it snowed on Christmas Eve and it was a white Christmas, or um, the tastes and the smells that you remember from when you were a kid, the music. Um, it's kind of this magical, enchanted time. And, or if you have little ones in the home, you can kind of live vicariously through them. You know, you can see that wonder in their eyes, and then you can kind of, you remember that yourself and be part of it. However, some of us, you know, we know this at this time of year that, that um, not all of us have that story. Um, for some of us, it doesn't bring magic and it doesn't bring um, uh, enchantment but heartache. Um, maybe, maybe because of bad memories of Christmas growing up, maybe you didn't get those gifts and maybe uh, you're like that kid in the song, uh, the kid that Santa Claus forgot, or, or maybe um, this is the first Christmas that you're going to be without a loved one. Um, and that doesn't make it enchanting. That doesn't make it, like, happy and joyful all the time and, and magical. In, in fact, it's, it's darkened by loss and, and tragedy and memories, bad memories. So, however, even if that is you this, this morning and this year, the fact that you feel the way you do um, reminds us that it's supposed to be better. It's a reminder that it, it's supposed to be better than it is, that it wasn't always supposed to be this way. Your awareness of the darkness and the brokenness is an indication that you know it's supposed to be better. It's supposed to be brighter. It's supposed to be whole and peaceful and joyful. There's supposed to be comfort. And even if this Christmas is the most wonderful time for you, you're in that first group, it's magical, it's enchanting, the reason you look forward to it is because it's in contrast to the rest of the year. That's kind of broken if we're honest. Things we see in our world that are dark. So this morning, whether you're in the first group where it's the most wonderful time of the year, or in the second group, whether it's like a blue Christmas for you, um, or anywhere in between, this season is a reminder that there's hope. It's a reminder that something is better out there, and we can long and hope for that. So the people Earlier in in, in Isaiah 9, we've read this last couple weeks, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For all of us who dwell in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So this morning, this Advent season, it's our hope and prayer that there's a new and fresh hope and joy, a longing in our hearts for this kingdom that Jesus has ushered in 2,000 years ago and that he's going to bring to bear someday, that we truly see Jesus as the light of the world, the hope, the peace, the joy of the world, and he's bringing his kingdom of those things to transform the dark corners of this kingdom this earthly kingdom into his kingdom of light. So, we are counseling or sorry, counseling. We're continuing this Advent series where we we remember the coming of Jesus the King. We look forward to the coming of Jesus the King, and, and I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the last two messages. Dan did an awesome job of just leading my heart into worship. I told him that. Like I just I was just led into worship of our King um, by his messages. So I was really really encourage you to listen to them if you haven't. And they bring context to the book of Isaiah, they bring context to this text this morning. Um, and the series title is called Unto Us, reminding us that this son that we that Patrick just read about, this child in the text, has been given to us. He's a gift. And today I want us to see what kind of gift he is. Is this child the greatest gift we've ever received? Or is there something else? Because if we accept this child as a gift, we're admitting that we actually need him. If we accept him, we're admitting that we need him as a gift for all who he is. For all who he is. Today we're going to focus on just two words in the text, everlasting father. And we're going to, the outline this morning is super simple. We're going to ask three questions and hopefully answer them. Number one, here's the first question. How can a son be an everlasting father? Number two, what are the implications of that for the world? And number three, what are the implications for you and me individually? How can a son be an everlasting father? What are the implications of that for the world? And what are the implications of that for you and me? So the first question how can the son's name be called Everlasting Father? It's kind of a perplexing verse, isn't it? Uh, you know, we have a son, a child, who we know is pointing ahead to Jesus' birth and incarnation 700 years later. And we know Jesus is the son of God, right? And the second person of the Trinity, God the son. Yet this says his name will be called Everlasting Father. What's up with that? So to answer that question, we need to answer a couple other questions to get some context. The first one is, uh, this first context question is, what is the Messiah? What does Messiah mean? What is the Messiah? Because all over Isaiah, if you remember from the last couple of weeks, uh, the, the book of Isaiah is, is, is all about, you know, uh, Isaiah speaking to Judah saying, hey, there's going to be judgment. This, uh, this nation of Syria is coming and they're going to attack and even a bigger nation Bigger than them is going to come Babylon, and they're going to take you out. But there's hope. There's a Messiah coming. There's this great picture of a Messiah all throughout all 66 chapters of Isaiah in different metaphorical ways. And, and so this this theme of Messiah, he's coming. And what does that mean? Isaiah, Isaiah 61, says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And that's first-person prophecy talking as, as if Jesus was talking, right? And we know later on Jesus quoted this and attributing it to him. We're going to look at that later. But the word anointed is the word Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. When they thought of the Messiah, they would have thought of a king. Because in the, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, there's only mainly two people, two offices, two, two positions that were anointed. And that was the priests and the kings were anointed. And so when they thought of an anointed one, they thought of a king and a priest, and that's what Jesus was. He came as a king and a priest, a priest king. David was was anointed as king. He was a messiah um, because he was anointed. Kings of Israel were all anointed. Um, uh, Cyrus, you can look in Isaiah 45, Cyrus, the king of Persia, it wasn't just Jewish or Hebrew kings. Cyrus, who was a king of Persia, was anointed and was a messiah. He came and he was appointed by Yahweh God. You can read about this in Isaiah 45, for a specific purpose to to release his people from Babylon uh, later on after the exile to come back in their land. Here's the point the Israelites would be expecting a king to come. And this child, this son, was going to be given by Yahweh God, the Lord. He was going to be the king upon which the government rested. So we need that context in mind that the son would be a king. And then second, another contextual question is what does the word name mean? Like what does name mean in the text? And it's one of those words we throw around in the church a lot. Maybe we don't understand what it means. We, we sing songs that say name above all names. And, and we, um, we pray in Jesus' name um, when we close prayers. What does that mean? In Hebrew, um, the word name means essence or reputation. Or glory, or fame. So when it says his name will be called, it means he will be known as, or his reputation will be this. And it's like when I think of some of you in the room, um, when I think of you, your first name, your, your proper name, your, your, your given name, I also think of who you are, your reputation. When I think of Dan Hardy, I think of some, uh, his name is zealous for the Lord. When I think of Nancy Hardy, I think of Servant of the Lord. Her name is Servant. Um, when I think of Pat Brady, his name is um, uh, uh, Zealous and Passionate for the Lost. Um, there's a couple members on our Czech team, Sarah Templeman and John O'Clapp. When I think of them, their name is Hospitality. When I think of J.J. Hummel, her name is Encouragement. When I think of Carol Simmons, her name is Humble and Wise. And it's like that. Um, when, and we, 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 we think of someone, we think of their reputation, their essence, who they are. And that's what this passage is, is getting at. So we have this meaning of the word name as essence, and we have the meaning of the Messiah as king. So we put those together and we can answer this question. How can the son's name be called Everlasting Father? So putting all this together, the king's reputation and essence will be Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So when you think of this king, you think of him ruling as an everlasting father. He is the son. He is the king. He is Yahweh God in the flesh who functions in that rule rule and role as a father of his kingdom. And we use this kind of language today. Think of our founding fathers of, of, of America. George Washington is the father of our nation. Or Gandhi was called the father of India. Or Alexander the Great was called the father of the Greeks. Um, some of us in here have been to the Czech Republic. And maybe, hopefully, some of you will go um, who haven't been um, on mission uh, to our sister church. But there, there's a Charles Bridge. You may have heard of it. And the King uh, Charles the Sixth or the fourth, I can't remember, he was... Um, one of those numbers, he was considered the father of the Bohemian nation, the Bohemian nation. And so it, that's how the language we use. And, 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 and another thing that might bring light to this is a Bible passage, First, First Corinthians 8, 6. Shed some light. May, I think it might be up above. Um, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So if you pay attention to the prepositions, the God is, it's for and from, from God the Father, and it's through, and it's through Jesus Christ. So it shows that relationship. He's not the Father. He's acting as the Father on the Father's behalf and pointing his people to his Father as he rules. Functioning like a Father in that he provides, he protects, he guides, he disciplines. So just to sum it all up, Jesus is Yahweh God in the flesh, right? He is representing the Godhead on earth as king, but this verse isn't messing up our view of the Trinity. Jesus is God the Son, not God the Father, or God the Spirit. He is unique and distinct from the other two, just as all three of them are unique and distinct from each other, but they're all one essence. They're all in one essence, God, Yahweh God. And Jesus is representing him in the flesh, Number two, second question, what are the implications of that for the world? That all hopefully made sense. That's how Jesus is ruling as a father. What are the implications of that for the world? The first thing I think we should remember is that this promise in Isaiah that a child is born and a son is given is a hope for Israel first and for the world second. See, this is a hope that all the promises made to Abraham, David, and all of Israel, Dan covered like uh, the covenants that were given to Abraham and David uh, uh, last week and the week before, they were going to be fulfilled in this Messiah King that was coming on the scene. So when the son was born, when this child entered history in, in Jesus, he wasn't starting something entirely new. No, he was born in the middle of a story and rather he was fulfilling something really old. He was born in act three of an act, a five-act play. Um, Jesus didn't start a new religion. He was the fulfillment of promises, all these promises. Even back to uh, Genesis 3.15, the promise to Adam and Eve that their one day would be, their offspring would, would, Eve's offspring would crush the head of a serpent. And this Jesus is coming in in the middle of that story and something God wanted to do all along to bring people to himself. And this promised child grew up, we know, and and when Jesus began his ministry, he made it clear that he knew who he was and what he came to do. And we could read about that in Luke 4, 4, uh, 14 through 21. So I'm going to read that. I think it's up, up, up on the screen, but just follow this with me. Jesus, this child who grew up, knew about this story that he was entering, obviously, right? He knew it. And he was telling people what it was very clearly. And he just got done being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, the the one whose head he would crush and did and and, and already like, and he will consummate that. And and so Jesus um, says this, when he's starting his ministry, verse 14, it says this, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as, he, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he knew exactly where he was going, which is amazing because they didn't have numbers back then on the scrolls. Um, he knew right where he was trying to read, and he, and he said this. This is a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah. Um, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, because that's what you did when you taught in a synagogue. You would sit down, stand up to read scripture, sit down to preach. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were affixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Staggering thing that he said. An amazing thing he just said there. All those whose eyes were fixed on him that day, you know what they would have heard him saying? They heard this hometown boy of Nazareth say, I am the king your people have been waiting for for 700 years. That's what he said to them. That's what they would have heard. And that the kingdom of God you've been longing for for 700 years has come in me now, today, in your hearing. Staggering. Imagine waiting for something for 700 years and here it is. It's arrived. Maybe they thought it had been bigger than that. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah King and the messenger who brought the good news of the kingdom of God that it had finally arrived on earth. That's what a first century Israelite or Jew Jew would have heard when they heard the word good news or gospel or euangelion in the Greek. They would have heard the announcement of a kingdom brought by a king. When a king would go out to battle and there was a victory, before before the king would return home, he'd send out messengers back to the city um, and they would proclaim the king has won. There's victory. He's coming home. Prepare a parade for him. That was a gospel that they were proclaiming. It was good news of victory. That's what they would have heard. The setting of the first marathon um, ever, Um, the 26.2 mile run uh, was in 490 BC when Greece was invaded by Persia and despite all odds, um, Greece managed to defeat Persia. And after the battle, they sent heralds to take the euangelion, the good good news, out into every town and village in the country to tell people what had happened, to declare to them that they were free. And those guys were evangelists of that gospel. An and inscription found in Priene, I think that's how you say it, in modern-day Turkey, it's close to Ephesus, kind of on the, east, uh, the, the western coast of Turkey. Referring to Caesar Augustus, they found this, this, uh, this tablet, and it says, the birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. So when they heard the word good news, euangelion, they would have heard a kingdom is coming and a king has won. A king is bringing victory. That's what they would have heard. So when we hear this word today, you know, we usually think about a spiritual reality, which is right, you know, that the the gospel, you know, purchased by us by our king, you know, saved us from our sins, and that's a spiritual reality, but they would have heard a political um, truth first. A political in nature, truth. In the Greco-Roman world, from the time of Alexander the Great into the Roman Empire, the word was used to refer to history-making, world-shaping reports of political, military, or societal victory, victories. So a king would bring about political and spiritual redemption, and they wouldn't have separated the, the two. And so that's what they saw, and that's what they heard Jesus saying. Jesus came as a child, a son given to us to bring about a kingdom by his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension on his throne to bring about a spiritual and physical kingdom. That's the gospel. Think about the Lord's Prayer. It's a gospel prayer. Um, recently, I've been trying to be more disciplined in prayer to my father. And in the mornings, you know, I grew up in a church that said the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday, and it meant nothing to me. But now, if you, Jesus taught us to pray this way, and it's a gospel prayer. Think about it. Our Father in heaven, great are you above all things. Your great is your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the hope of the gospel that a kingdom would transform this world and a king would do it. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not somewhere you go when you die, it's something that is here now. And it's something that is coming. And it's something that Jesus has brought. And it's something he's bringing. He's bringing to us. Isaiah 52. I think it's also going to be up on the screen. Listen to this familiar passage. It's it's another gospel message passage. Gospel message. 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings, there it is the word, good news. Who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We sang about that earlier. He reigns. The king reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. The watchmen would be up on the tower, and when those messengers would come into the city, they'd see them and they'd proclaim, he's coming. They're bringing good news. And so the voices of the watchmen, they lift up their voice. They, together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of, Of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Let's stop there for a second. Verse 8 says: the story of the gospel is the return of the king. I love Lord of the Rings. My favorite, one of my favorite movies is The Return of the King, and it's this picture that captivates my imagination. And it reminds me of Jesus, um, Aragorn coming in, and that's the picture of the gospel the return of the king. Um, Between the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, there was this period of time where there was no evidence that Yahweh God was present in the temple, and in fact, the temple was destroyed, and so they're waiting after exile for this king to come. They want Yahweh God to come back, and he came back in flesh in Jesus, and that's what that hope is. Um, verse 10 of this passage, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So the king comes not only to fulfill the promises to the Hebrew nation or the people of Abraham, but to all nations. That's the gospel that God started with Abraham, Genesis 12, that all nations will be blessed. And so it's not, it starts with the Jewish nation, but then it goes out to all the world and all tribes and tongues and nations. And that's this gospel message. All the ends of the earth, and this last line I love, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And you know what the word salvation is in Hebrew? Yeshua. The Hebrew word for Jesus. Yeshua, Yahweh saves. So, you can't say Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. Um, and all the ends of the earth shall see the Yeshua of our God. All the ends of the earth shall see the Jesus of our God. That's what his word meant, that's what his name meant. And it was his essence, too. Jesus began his ministry on earth in the middle of the story in Act 3. And then sent his followers out to the ends of the earth to spread the good news with with all his authority to the ends of the earth. And we see that happen at Pentecost when he sent out his disciples. And and that's, that's act four of the play. And we're currently in that act right now. And you and I are his disciples, if you believe in him, to go out and spread that gospel news that the kingdom is coming and has come. And right now he rules on his throne as an everlasting father. Over his kingdom at his father's side protecting, providing, disciplining, guiding us like a father would over his government, his kingdom. And then going back to Isaiah 9, what Patrick just read, what kind of government is it? It's a government that increases. It's a government that spreads and it has no end. And implied in that is that it's a government not just for one people group, but it's for the whole world. That's the gospel. It's for the nations. That God in his infinite wisdom through Jesus, the Messiah King, is is now not just the everlasting father for the Jews, but he is for the whole world for those who believe in him, for every nation, tribe, and tongue, that he wants to be an everlasting father for all peoples. That's amazing news that you and I are included in that. That's the news that Paul, when he says it's the mystery of the gospel, that's what he's saying, that Gentiles would be included in the promises of God. That's the mystery of the gospel that he proclaims and that he praises God for. Oh, the, oh, the riches and the knowledge of God. How amazing it is. Oh, the depth of wisdom. That's the impact that this news had on the world. Now, what are the implications for you and you and me? Last question this morning. Number three, what are the implications of that for you and me individually? So when you guys think of what a father, like an ideal father, um, what an ideal father does, what what, uh, roles or what things come to mind? What does a father do, a good father? You can speak if you want to. Courage? Oh, and courage. Thank you. What was that? Protect. Protect, provide. I'm sorry? Wise counsel. Wise counsel. Guiding, protecting. That's what our everlasting father does, right? Um, I asked Esther that. Sometimes I ask my family like, questions. What do you think of when you think of father? And, and without hesitation, she said, barbecue, <laughs> kill spiders, tell bad jokes. Um, maybe in heaven. Maybe, I bet you God, if he barbecued for us, it'd be amazing. Um, he will kill all the bad things, though, before we get there my default position in life um, is and has been um, since I was a kid, independence in my flesh, independence. Uh, I don't need a father now. I didn't need parents when I grew up. I could figure things out on my own. I wanted to run away when I was a kid, like a lot of times, and I did a few times, uh, I, but I came back um, and because uh, I realized it was scary out there. Um, and, and, and I I was just independent. I, and I even call myself fiercely independent um, in my flesh. I just, I just am an independent person. Then it does not go well in a marriage. I don't know if you guys knew that. It doesn't go well in ministry. It doesn't go well in relationships, in life, when you're fiercely independent. And, and I can't be fiercely independent and be a child of God. I can't be fiercely independent and swear allegiance to this king we've been talking about who wants to rule my life as a father. Protecting me, providing for me, disciplining me. How many of you live your lives as if you'd need a father? To tell you anything. To provide for you, to discipline you, to protect you. How good are you at being a child? Because to accept this gift, the King Jesus who rules like an everlasting father, you are admitting that you need an everlasting father. And what does that look like for me, my independence? Where does it rear its ugly head? It's a lack of prayer. A lack of prayer. Um, spending more time planning than praying. When I'm heading into a hard situation or unknown situation, my default mode is just to figure it out. And I don't know if you saw that... that. Um, that Travis Smith posted on The Realm this week, a survey of prayer. I encourage you to take it. But um, on Tuesday mornings, there's a time here he leads uh, of prayer. And, um, what are the, and, and in the survey, like, what are the things or how often do you pray and what are the things that might hinder you from prayer? And for me, it's my independence because prayer means I got to depend upon my Father. Like I need Him. And so because I'm so independent, I don't pray. I don't pray like I should because I don't really need him, I think. I think. I can just plan my way through life. One of the greatest blessings in our life is Zach, Uh, of course. He's up there somewhere. Hey, Zach. Um, He's my son. I love him, of course. Josiah and Esther are okay, but we're talking about Zach right now. This child, this son, was given unto us. He's a blessing specifically because of how God knit him together, just like he is with all his special quirks, all his special needs. He's happy. He's content. Um, his, he brightens people's day. When he walks in the room, smiles happen. He's just, a, he's just, and, he, and he'll be 21 in a few weeks. And he's still dependent. Um, he'll probably never be in that place of independence, but Christmas still has magic to it. He can still imagine himself riding along in that Polar Express on the countryside that's going around our tree, Christmas tree. He still imagines himself there, and and, he just, and I can vicariously live through that, and it's awesome, and, and I don't think we'll ever be done with Thomas and Legos and Star Wars figures, and that's awesome. But Lori and I are his guardians, and, and, and he's depended on us. And this is yet another time when God has taught me so much through him, but um, in this beautiful creation he's made, that I, this is how I should be with my everlasting father king. That no matter how much I grow up, I will never stop needing my father and should never stop being captivated, captivated by the wonder of this world he's created in the kingdom he's brought and is bringing. Maybe I'm more dependent on Zach than he is on me, I think, a lot of times. Have you grown up? Have you grown up? Have you been a Christian so long that you've grown to a place of boredom? Um with this, the same stories. You've heard all this stuff before. The story of a king born in a manger, not a palace. A 12-year-old boy that could captivate a circle of learned teachers. A man convincing a storm to calm down with his voice. A teacher who could tie up into knots the greatest minds of his day with just a few words. A king who ate with peasants. A king who was so brave and courageous that he stood toe-to-toe with a dragon so that he could defend and save his helpless bride. A king stripped bare, exalted on a twisted, dark, wooden throne with a crown not of gold but of thorns. A king who willingly stared death in the face and was victorious over our greatest enemy, a king who is enthroned even now, ruling and waiting for more sons and daughters to come in. More and more, till the time is right to bring the fullness of the kingdom to bear on this earth, here we are as his children, waiting in expectant hope of that kingdom and bringing as many people as we can with us into his coming kingdom. That sounds pretty boring. I like the world's version better, right? The world's version is better. You're born. You get the best education you can, you get the best career you can, you get the best wife and kids you can, you retire early at 55, and you fish, you golf, you ski, or travel till you die. Is that better? Or maybe the traditional Christian religious version where it's all the same, all the above, except for you go to church on Sundays. And maybe even believe in Jesus, that he died for your sin, that you can just kind of hopefully wait out, wait out this life comfortably until he comes to take you away, away in a manger to live with him forever in this disembodied, ethereal, harp-playing place. How about you? What story is captivating you this Christmas? What kingdom version are you living in? Is it one with an everlasting father on his throne? Because to accept that version, you're admitting that you need an everlasting father. You need him. What's the best and quickest way to spoil a child? Um, I was thinking this week. Give them all the control they want. Give them all the choices they want. Give them all the money they want. And give them all the freedom they want. Or a shorter way to say that is let someone grow up in middle-class America. And what is spoiling a child if not ruining their childhood, making them grow up too quickly, stripping that child of any wonder and stripping them of any dependence on their parents or guidance that they need? It's really, 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 really hard to approach life as a child in northern Colorado. Because since July 4th, 1776, in this nation, we've been crying independence to this day. 2019, where I did the research, because I'm weird, I don't know why, but uh, there's 1,771 different uh, configurations of Apple Watches you can choose, just so you can get the one that's just right for you. Or you can go to Fort Collins and one of 650 restaurants, and you don't even have to go there. You can get them to come to you with DoorDash and stuff like that, and, and the choices we have are endless, and the money we have is endless, and the resources, and the time, and all that stuff. And, and you know, it's awesome to live in northern Colorado, right? Because we can get what we want, when we want it, with whom we want it, where we want it. And it sounds like we're spoiled, because we are. It's hard to be a child here. Unto us, a son has been given. Unto us, a child has been born. Unto us, a king is reigning. This king provides all we need. This king protects us. This king dis- disciplines us so that we grow. Because he loves us, and this king will always be king, and his kingdom will continue to grow and multiply forever. He has been given by God the Father. He is a gift. He's given, but he rules on his father's behalf, and he rules as an everlasting father. And by accepting that gift, by accepting this child, this son that was born 2,000 years ago, you're saying that you need a king to accept this gift. You're saying that you are willing to submit to him as you would a father. You're saying you can't, but he can. You're saying that you need not have. You're weak, not strong. You're helpless, not in control. To accept this gift, you have to be a child. A weak, helpless, needy, snotty, dirty, diapered child that desperately needs a father. A father who will never stop being your father. Can you do that? This Christmas? Can, can I do that? Can we do that? Are we willing to be children? Because like it or not, he is a king, and he is an everlasting father. He rules like an everlasting father. That means we have to be willing to be everlasting children in his kingdom who grow in our need for him, not in our independence from him. I think it's ironic, I was thinking this week, that um, the most mature Christians are the most childlike Christians, It's ironic that to grow in maturity as a follower of Christ, you need to become more childlike. The most dependent people are the most mature people in God's kingdom. And we'll never grow enough to where we don't need a father. If he's our everlasting father, that means we have an everlasting need for him. Mark 10, Jesus was teaching. The scene is familiar He was teaching, and and, and verse 13, Mark 10, 13 says, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Have we really reflected on that verse? Because I know I don't act like a child um, um, like I should. I act like I got it together. Unto us a son has been given. The light dawned upon a dark world. He made his dwelling among us. That son grew up. He lived. He died. He was raised. He ascended to his throne and will come back again to make this his dwelling place again. King Jesus is on his throne today. Right now, ruling like a father, his kingdom has no end. He will, it will always expand. He didn't come to save you out of this world. He came to save this world and bring uh, heaven to us. And I think I finish every message I do with this passage because it just so captivates me. I'm not, I'm not gonna apologize for doing it. Let's do it again. Uh, Revelation 21, one through three. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And the sea was no more. That means there was no more separation between us and God. every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Sounds like what a good father would do for his children, doesn't it? And then verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, my daughter, my child. Is this Christmas story the one that's captivating your imagination? The question is, do we want to be part of this? Do you want to be part of it? If so, then we must, we must come to him as needy, weak, desperate children and believe and swear allegiance to him as king, a king who rules like an everlasting father. Amen? Let me, let me pray. Dear Father, we, <laughs> we thank you that we can call you Father. God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to rule on your behalf as a father, as one who protected us and guides us and provides for us. Even now, right now, we're provided and protected by your spirit. We know that you fill us, you strengthen us, you guide us. You've given us these people around us to help with that. Lord, thank you for all your provision. Lord, we need all of it. None of us can survive in your kingdom without you and your people. We need you to be our father. Lord, help us to be a church that is childlike, not childish, but childlike, that we would come in dependence of you, that we wouldn't be haughty, that we wouldn't let this kingdom of the world Fool us into thinking we have our lives together because we don't, not, not one of us. Lord, we need you. Would you provide? Would you lead? Would you protect this season? Captivate our imaginations. God, we pray. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand as we continue to worship the King.